the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening on this week's programme. She would have worked the Land League revolution to a much better conclusion than her great brother. I think that the Irish state owes her a huge debt. Anna Parnell, the life and legacy of the founder of the Ladies' Land League. Also, this liberation was not just for her, but it was for as many as she could lead out of the house of bondage. Harriet Tubman, how faith inspired the American abolitionist and activist and her long road to being immortalised as the face on the $20 bill. Plus... The stories of the, of the people stuffed into rooms, the panic among the children, it's just mind-boggling and people dropping dead in the street. Dr Colm Kenny joins us to talk about the famine in Kenmare, County Kerry and the efforts of an independent-minded priest to help starving people. But to begin this evening, last month Anna Parnell, the founder of the Ladies' Land League, was honoured with a plaque on O'Connell Street in Dublin. It was erected 110 years after she died in a drowning accident in Ilfracombe in Devon at the age of 59. To talk about her extraordinary life with me this evening are two guests from Belfast. I'm joined by feminist historian Dr Margaret Ward, who first wrote about Anna in her seminal work, Unmanageable Revolutionaries. And also with me here in Dublin is Lucy Keevney, a retired teacher who's campaigned tirelessly for Anna to receive greater recognition for the important role that she played in Irish history. You're both very welcome indeed to the History Show. Thank Uh, you, Miles. Margaret, uh, in Belfast, could you talk to us first of all about Anna's early life and about how she and her siblings, principally obviously Charles Stuart Parnell and Fanny Parnell, became politicised? Well, the the three of them are what uh, Roy Foster would call the political Parnells, the younger members of the family. The older ones weren't politically interested and and were part of the the upper classes and the kind of land-owning classes. But what made them unusual was the fact that they had in their mother Delia an American who had a very wide family background so that, for example, one of their great aunts by marriage was a member of a suffrage group in America. So the younger Parnells, after their father died, there wasn't a lot of money, so they weren't schooled. The children, the girls weren't schooled. They were much more able to run free, to develop interests of their own, to read what they wanted. And Delia really didn't give them the same kind of discipline or aspirations to marriage, etc., that would have been expected by girls of their class. So they're very different from their older siblings and um, much more free-spirited. And at a very early age, Fanny Parnell becomes interested in Fenianism to the extent that she actually attends O'Donovan Ross's trial in 1867. So you can see they were very, very different from what a Protestant landowning family would have been at that time in 19th century Ireland. Now, of course, the Land League is founded in 1879, seeking to help poor tenant farmers, enable them to own the land that they are working. And when the male leadership of the Land League was imprisoned in 1881, the Ladies' Land League, led by Anna Parnell, took over their work. And and Margaret, Anna travelled far and wide throughout the country carrying out the work of the Ladies' Land League and encouraging women around the country to form local branches with a lot of success. 
Yes, because it grows very rapidly. But I just go back very slightly. She's in America at the time of the formation of the Land League with Fanny and Delia. And they set up Ladies Land League's branches in America, first of all, in New York and Boston and places. And Fanny travels around. And that is to raise money for the Land League in Ireland. And so Anna is watching those developments and she comes back to Ireland at the end of 1880 and the men know that they're going to be imprisoned and the League prescribed. And so they invite her to become the secretary of a women's organisation that they expect would only keep up a semblance of position. They didn't expect the woman to be able to do very much, but they reckoned without Anna Parnell, who said she a programme of a permanent resistance till the aims of the League was achieved was the only logical one. And so she sets out to encourage women to come forward and immediately starts travelling around the countryside. So by the beginning of 1882, there are over 100, 500 branches, and a lot of them have between one and two 200 members and also in Glasgow, London, Liverpool and Manchester she goes across and encourages branches to be formed amongst Irish communities in Britain. Lucy, you found out about Anna's life and and work at a lecture, I think. Tell me about how you actually found out about her and the effect that it had on you. Well, actually, I went to the Parnell School in Avondale, the summer school, in 2011 and I heard the story of Anna Purnell, just as Margaret has said it now, and how how she ended uh, her, her final end. I couldn't get over that I had gone through the educational system here, primary school, secondary school and college, had done history in college. And I had not never heard of Anna Purnell or the Ladies' Land League. It had a profound effect on me. We knew that on that day it was dedicated to Anna because it was the centenary of her death. Loads of pictures of Charles Stewart around the hall. There wasn't one picture of Anna. So it had a deep effect on me and resolved that we would go and visit her grave when we got an opportunity, which we did in 2013. And the graveyard was in a shambles, the whole graveyard, but her particular grave. It took us three hours to find the grave. Now, I didn't stay the three hours. My husband has greater lasting power than I have. But when we found it, it was in a very bad state. The headstone was tilted back. The slightest gust of wind would have knocked it down. So we headed to the local flower place garden centre and got gravel and plants and a spade and we spent hours doing up the grave. We got little stones to prop up the headstone and we thought that was it then, that we had done our bit. We've gone, we went over every year since that And through different connections we made, we actually got the government to actually renovate the grave, which they did. And once they renovated it, then we felt that there really should be an official ceremony at the grave, which we had in 2018. The Irish ambassador to Great Britain, Mr Adrian O'Neill, laid a read on behalf of the Irish government. Helen Dunlop-Malley laid a read on behalf of the Irish women. In all, there were four reeds laid. 
you have plans, but we'll talk about those yeah. plans a little bit later. Uh, what you're essentially saying is that the neglect of Anna neglect. Parnell continues, continues uh, almost yes. almost to this day. Um, but one of the things that impressed you most when you began to look into the history, the story of Anna Parnell, was her sheer organisational skill and nous. Describe that to me. How good was she? She was absolutely brilliant. I mean, they had branches all over the country. They actually did the work that the men had planned to do, but never did. When people were being evicted, they had, before they actually took over, they had found out all the, the holdings of land that were rented, the size of the land, the names of the landlords, absentee landlords. And when they actually took over, they had a very good record, a database really, mm. of all the holdings around Ireland and the people in them. And when they heard about somebody being evicted, they would sit with them to prevent the evictions. And then if they failed, they would build little bohons for them. So they were absolutely, they held meetings around the country. Of course, the establishment didn't want those meetings and they broke them up. So what the women did, they decided they'd hold all the meetings at the same time so they wouldn't have the personnel and they used to provide food for the men in prison so that the men wouldn't have to eat the prison food. So what they did was phenomenal. They were an extraordinary activists at a time. They were before their time, actually. Indeed. And I know they weren't particularly popular with the Cardinal Archbishop, the Catholic Cardinal Archbishop they were, of Dublin. But the more, uh, the more they were condemned from the altar, the more the women joined up. Mm. Um, now, Margaret Anna wrote an account of her Land League experiences uh, in 1907 called Tale of a Great Sham. Not that you would have had much success if you were looking for it between 1907 and 1986, because that's when it was finally published. Does she talk about her own strategy in the Ladies' Land League and how her strategy differed from that of her brother's? Oh, very much so. I mean, what she doesn't do is talk about personalities. She says personalities don't matter. What matters are events. And what she talks about is, first of all, the very merciless dissection of what the men were doing. I mean, at the time, their strategy was rent at the point of a bayonet, which meant that they would defy the landlord right up to the very end, and then the League would pay all the legal costs, and then people would pay the rent. It was a very expensive strategy, and the money was going to the landlord in the end. The the rent was being paid if people could pay it. What would happen later, of course, were the ones who couldn't pay any rent. But the rent of the point of a bayonet, she felt, was a strategy that led nowhere and it wasn't challenging landlordism. When the men went to jail, they then issued the No Rent Manifesto, which she thought was an even more difficult strategy until she realised the men had, had no intention of actually enforcing it. And that for her was the sham that they would have these great pronouncements but hadn't ever thought about how they would make that a reality. So she said that they were determined that if this was going to be the strategy, that they would make it a reality. And and that's what they developed, what they called their Book of Kells, this very detailed annotation of the state of the country, the strength of landlord power, whether or not tenants could actually pay 
the rent. And of course, you also had the complication of a Land Act then being legislated for by Gladstone and the Liberals, which meant that those who had money could apply to the land courts and get rent alleviation. The problem was that the landless labourers and those of leaseholders weren't part of the Act. And so the Ladies' Land League, then it becomes very much, you can see the class fishers in Irish society, what they're really doing are supporting the poorest and the dispossessed in society and the better off for applying to the land courts. And they're the ones who are really the followers of the Irish party and Charles Stuart Parnell, whereas the women more and more are sympathising with the dispossessed and those who are simply being turned out at the side of the road. They're the ones they build the land lead huts for and try and help them when it comes to evictions. And so there's a great wedge between what the men had wanted to achieve, which basically was to have a kind of a show of resistance, but it was really on a political stage between Parnell and the Liberal Party rather than actually challenging landlord power in Ireland. When you think that only 800 people owned the whole of the land in Ireland at this time, what the Ladies' Land League wanted was something very different and they wanted either peasant proprietorship or I think Anna Parnell actually wanted land nationalisation. She was a, a friend of Henry George, the great American agrarian reformer, who came over and wrote in the Irish World newspaper at the time and had a great admiration for what the women were doing. He said that they would have achieved the end of the Land League in a way that the, the men he didn't feel were capable of doing. And of course, Michael Davitt, a great admirer of Henry George, was also a great admirer of Anna Parnell. The land war then comes to an end in 1882, in effect, as a, as a result of a deal between Parnell and Gladstone called the, the Kilmainham Treaty. And Parnell does not appreciate his sister's activism when he comes out of jail. And you have this charge of extravagance, which is set against the Ladies' Land League, despite the fact that, uh, as Lucy has pointed out, a lot of the money that they spent was spent on feeding prisoners in Kilmainham and elsewhere. So what happens then when Parnell gets out of Kilmainham? I know, I mean, the charge of extravagance is such hypocrisy. I mean, £21,000 was spent on feeding the prisoners. Um, and when the women, I mean, there were women who were also jailed, they didn't have food sent into them because they weren't treated as political prisoners. And the women did collect money themselves, but they did spend about £70,000. It is an enormous amount. But a lot of that was on legal fees, on things, that, on a strategy that the land league itself had implemented or had called to be implemented and and it became an expensive strategy and the more and more people apply to land courts etc the more the land league was paying legal costs for them so it was actually a strategy they were more successful than the men and their costs rose as a result of that and it wasn't because of extravagance it was because of their effectiveness and Parnell comes out and the first thing he says to David is the women have to be dissolved but in fact they don't want the women to be dissolved 
really. They want them to be controlled by the men, but they want the women to continue looking at the pleas that are coming in for help, for charitable help, and they want the women to make those decisions. And the women say that was always the worst part of our job. That isn't what we're there for. If we can't be politically active, we don't want to remain in existence. And there's this tussle between the women and the men for several months before the women eventually do dissolve. And it's announced that there'll be this new organisation, the National League, which will be, as they say, an open organisation in which the ladies will not take part. And in the midst of all of this, Fanny Parnell dies in August of 1882. But even that does not appear to bring brother and sister Anna Parnell and Charles Stuart Parnell together. No, and I think that at that stage, Anna suffers a really an emotional collapse. I mean, it's such a shock that her sister, who's only 33, who she was extremely close to, dies so suddenly of a heart attack. And Anna's overworked anyway, so she withdraws for a while, goes to recuperate, and there are various messages about her health and her recovering health posted in the newspaper, but it does say very definitely that she won't be coming back. But that's the men writing that. They say that it'd be very doubtful whether she'll ever take up a position in public life again. They don't want her to do it. That's quite obvious. And so, in in a sense, she does withdraw from the final dissolution of the Ladies' Land League, which is taken over by other members of her executive. She goes then to the southwest of England and she lives by a different name, Sarisa Palmer. Is that a denial of the name Parnell? Well, she goes to an artist colony in Cornwall, first of all, because she was a talented painter and had been to art college. And then she goes to Devon. When you know, we, we think about it, Catherine O'Shea once writes to Parnell when he's in jail that the an effigy of his sister had been burnt on Guy Fawkes' night outside her house. So the name Parnell was not a usual name. I can see why she possibly wouldn't have wanted people to have known who she was related to and all of the things that had happened in the past, that she wanted a quiet life. So although she led a quiet life, she wasn't as reclusive as, as we sometimes think. She kept on a great correspondence, for example, with Helen Taylor, who was the stepdaughter of John Stuart Mill. And Helen Taylor had been the head of the Political Prisoners Aid Society, came over to Ireland several times during this time. And she supports Helen Taylor when in 1885 she tries to stand as a radical candidate in the the English elections, challenging women's exclusion from Parliament. And then later on, when Maud Gon sets up Anini Naheran, she's again sending telegrams to them. So she's still very much engaged, but she tends to not come back to Ireland that often. But she does come back. She comes back and speaks for Sinn Féin when they stand in their first by-election She comes back in 1911 and gives a three-hour lecture on the Ladies' Land League to a meeting of Anini Naheran and the Franchise League. So she never leaves Ireland mentally, but yes, she doesn't have that name when she's in England. Mm. 
Lucy, you have managed to achieve some measure of recognition for Anna Parnell with a blue plaque in O'Connell Street, but you, you want more. Let's go back to Ilfracombe and let's go back to that grave. You want her body, her remains to be repatriated, don't you? I would like that to happen now for lots of reasons. Number one, the Parnell Society visited that grave in 2002 and they placed a plaque on it with a quote from Anna's writings. But between 2002 and 2013, it had disintegrated and was in a bad state when we found it. The state has now taken it over. Are we going to wait another? Is it going to disintegrate again? We can't let that happen. Can I read a quote for you? Mm. It's from Andrew Kettle, who was one of the founders of the Irish Land League. He described Anna as, quote, having a better knowledge of the social and political forces in Ireland than any person, man or woman, I have ever met. She would have worked the Land League revolution to a much better conclusion than her great brother. Yeah, Kettle did think that she would have made a far better job of it than Charles Stewart Parnell. Should she be in Glasnevin? She should be in Glasnevin. Everyone I've spoken to said, bring her home. And there's a hashtag, bring her home. Margaret, how would you feel about that? Do you think, would you be in favour of repatriating the remains of Anna Parnell? Absolutely. And, and thinking about that, I was doing a newspaper search for the time of her death and I found a very interesting letter from a JP Dunn who had been a member of the Children's Land League and he wrote to the Irish Independent saying... Why should alien earth rest on her coffin lid, the green grass of Glasnevin, like the green banners she loves so well should enshroud it? And he called on the patriot ladies of Ireland to see she's rewarded with an Irish grave, saying more than that should have been her due, less than that would be base ingratitude. And I think that that really sums it up. I think that the Irish state owes her a huge debt and it can only really be repaid by having her come to Glasnev. And after all, her death was not... It wasn't that she was ill and she knew that she was going to die. She died from drowning. It was a shock. She wasn't able to have decided for herself. And she didn't leave a will. She hadn't got a will. She left to her estate. She'd inherited some money before she had died, so she wasn't poverty-stricken at this time. She'd left over a £1,000, and it was administered by her brother, Henry Tudor Parnell. But there was nobody there of the political Parnells who had that connection with Ireland to have supported that. Dunn actually says that he calls for the living relatives of her to do that, to bring her remains back to Irish soil. But they were all very much part of English society. I don't think they were interested. Well, the best of luck with the with Thank the you. campaign and Lucy Keaveney. Uh, hopefully that will, will proceed and will be successful. The book Tale of a Great Sham is how Anna Parnell described her own activities. Not well worth reading, but not easy, unfortunately, to get hold of. But you can find out a lot more about her in Margaret Ward's Unmanageable Revolutionaries. Miles, could I just say that it's been republished by UCD Press um, and and it is available. Excellent. Good for them. Good for them. I was completely unaware of that. But uh, I do remember getting hold of a copy of it a number of years ago and having great difficulty in doing so. Can I just say something else? Lucy, yeah. There were just seven people at her funeral. 
Right. We okay. need to rectify that. Okay. Well, that's five more than were at the funeral of of, of Captain O'Shea. So that's yep. uh, which was not too far away uh, down the coast. But so, so anyway, but still, that's we can we can do better. We could do better. A lot better than seven. So my guests, Margaret Ward and Lucy Keveney, thank you both very much for talking to us about this extraordinary woman's life and legacy. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. Harriet Tubman is best known as a conductor on the Underground Railroad. In the years before the American Civil War, she led enslaved people to freedom, all while carrying a bounty on her head. Her actions earned her the nickname Moses. In 1896, she spoke at a women's suffrage convention about those years, stating, I never ran my train off the track and I never lost a passenger. Tubman was born enslaved in Maryland in 1822 and escaped to Philadelphia in 1849. She soon returned to rescue her family and to help guide others to freedom, travelling by night and in extreme secrecy. Five years ago, during the Obama administration, it was announced that Tubman was set to become the new face of the US $20 bill. The new bill is taking some time as it goes through a complex design and security feature testing process. But when it arrives, it'll be hugely significant. Tubman, a former slave, will be replacing President Andrew Jackson, who himself owned slaves. Colin Flynn has been finding out more about Tubman. He spoke to Dr. Eric Lewis-Williams about how her Christian faith inspired her to seek liberation for her people. One of the songs that the enslaved Africans sang, All Freedom, All Freedom. All Freedom. All Freedom Over Me. All Freedom Over Me. And before I be a slave, I be buried in my grave and go home with my Lord and be free. And before I be I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. Eric Williams is the curator of religion for the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., and has studied the life of Harriet Tubman. When we look at the life of Harriet Tubman, a very large part of her quest to be free uh, was her, her understanding of God and the God that made her. So her Christian faith was central to her quest for liberation. And so for the enslaved Africans, uh, the Christians, they didn't see themselves as enslaved persons. They saw themselves as people who God loved, people who God made and made to be free. Eric, Harriet Tubman has become such a powerful icon for the black community in the United States. How did she become such a strong symbol? Uh, Harriet Tubman uh, looms large uh, in the African-American imagination because of the stand that she took in a time when it was very dangerous to to be black in this country. But she took a stand and... She not only liberated herself, uh, but she uh, continued to put herself in harm's way to liberate others. 
And as someone who was enslaved, how did she practice her faith? And where did she get that strong Christian belief from? Uh, that's a great question. Um, there is a, a scholar who died maybe uh, three weeks ago, actually. He wrote a very important book, Albert Rabito was his name, called Slave Religion, The Invisible Institution in the Antebellum South. And in his book, he talks about these clandestine meetings that the enslaved Africans would have after they had worked all day and after uh, the, uh, those who enslaved them had gone to sleep, that they would, um, as, the, as the spiritual says, they would steal away to Jesus. In other words, they would go out to the secret worship service and they would worship according to the dictates of their own conscience. It was, it was a worship of their own. It was not the kind of practices that were enforced upon them by those that enslaved them, but these uh, secret meetings that they would have. And so uh, the African-American church that we have today owes its origins in large measure to the invisible institution. Isn't it incredible, Eric, that the enslaved black community looked to their Christian faith as a sign of strength and encouragement despite what they were going through day in and day out on the fields or wherever they were, and and they didn't think, Jesus, God, why have you placed me here? Why have you put your people here in this situation? Yeah, and so so thank you for that that observation, um, which to me, it reveals the genius of the tradition. The kind of Christianity that they were taught by those that enslaved them was to be docile, We understand that you want freedom, and it's going to come in the sweet by and by, in the world to come. They were gestured toward a kind, by their enslavers, toward a kind of otherworldliness. Whereas uh, for the enslaved Africans, the world that they inherited was not the world that God truly willed. And so they had to, to take, they had to do something about it. They had to be agents in their own liberation, and that God called them to do it. And Harriet Tubman was one of those who, who understood that as a personal call out of, uh, to use the words from the Hebrew scripture, out of the house of bondage. Now, since the Obama administration, there has been much talk about having Harriet Tubman placed on the $20 bill. What is the update on that? Yeah, so that is um, something that is um, quite a vibrant conversation uh, in the U.S. now, especially within the black community. You know, every president has their priorities. um, And now that President Biden is in office, it appears that there is an attempt to accelerate it. But one of the issues around the time is that it takes, um, because of these anti-counterfeit laws, it takes time for this to happen. And at the moment on the $20 bill in the United States, you have the face of Andrew Jackson. Isn't that right? Yeah. yeah, One one of the things about uh, Jackson, and that was uh, Jackson's posturing toward the uh, indigenous people of the land, and of course, his association with the slave trade, with the institution of slavery, let me say, is part of the American story. But there is another um, story. 
And that story is one of, of desire for freedom and of toil and labor for freedom, questing for a full and whole life. And I think that the inclusion of, of Tubman uh, helps us to, to lean more into that, uh, that story and lean more into a future where um, we're all, all should and, and will be free. And finally, Eric, what would it mean to you and to the black community there in the United States to finally see Harriet Tubman placed on the $20 bill? Yeah, I think it, I think it would be really powerful for me in, in a number of ways, knowing the contribution of women to building this nation. That would be a very powerful statement. Um, now our greenbacks are all, all men. So just to have the inclusion of a woman, but to have a woman of African descent who lived for liberation, for the cause of liberation, uh, not only to enjoy the sunlight of her own liberation, but to even risk her life so that others could live in freedom. I think that represents the very best of the American democratic tradition. And I'm all for it. Colin Flynn was reporting there on the life of Harriet Tubman. He was talking to Dr. Eric Lewis-Williams, curator of religion at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. After the break, I'll be joined by Dr. Colm Kenny to talk about what happened in Kenmare, County Kerry, during the Great Famine. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. And now we're visiting the beautiful town of Kenmare in County Kerry. A recently published book tells the story of an independent-minded priest and his efforts to help starving people during the Great Famine. It's called Kenmare, History and Survival, Father John O'Sullivan and the Famine Poor. The author is Dr. Colm Kenny, who joins us now. You're very welcome back to the History Show, Colm. Thank you. The book traces and deconstructs the history of the area from the 1650s onwards, but your main focus is the famine period and the role of the parish priest of Kenmare in helping the towns poor and, and dying. There's a, there's a kind of a personal connection to Father John O'Sullivan, so maybe you will uh, start with that. Tell us how you first learned about him. My granny was born in Tralee and uh, she was related to Father John somewhat distantly, but they had an ancestor. Father John's grandfather was a direct lineal ancestor of my granny. He was a ship's captain in Dingle. He used to take butter to Lisbon until unfortunately on what was meant to be his last voyage, he went down with his ship and was never seen again. But she left a letter, a handwritten copy. She'd copied a long letter that was printed by Father O'Sullivan and circulated to his parishioners during the famine. And she left this when she died. And it was among, in a box of papers on top of a wardrobe, as family papers tend to be. And I'd never paid much attention until a couple of years ago I picked it up and I began to think, what's this about and who is this man? And I began to dig and found the most extraordinary collection of papers Mm. 
still surviving, about him and about the workhouse where the poor were during the famine in he Kenmer. Kept very vivid journals, didn't he? Very vivid journals, and they're in the diocesan archive in Killarney. Um, they've never been fully published, and they're fascinating in all kinds of ways about Ireland at that period. Uh, this was a time, don't forget, when more than two out of every five Irish people was living in a one-room mud cabin. I mean, this is who we are, and this is one of the reasons I've always wanted to tell a story about this period, lest we forget just exactly where we come from and what life can be like. Tell us a little bit about O'Sullivan's early life and then his and his training as a priest. He grew up in Tralee himself and uh, he went to school in a, in a school which was attended by Catholics and Protestants. I mean, in those days it was unusual. often... It was unusual, I suppose, it was dying out. I mean, quite a few Irish towns seemed to have had school teachers who ran private schools. This was before, if you like, the nuns and the Christian brothers really got going and we had a proper, if you like, formal educational system. And he grew up there in a family where his father had died when he was young. So, you know, they were not very well off. But early on, he was seen to have some talent. And the local bishop, Cornelius Egan, got him a place in Maynooth. And he did quite well when he went to Maynooth. But there was a great shortage of priests. So although he qualified for a scholarship for further study, Cornelius Egan brought him back to Kerry and sent him out to Dingle as a curate. And interestingly enough, it tells something about Tralee, I think, at that stage. His Irish was terrible. He hardly spoke any, and Cornelius Egan insisted that you know he brush up his Irish before he sent him to Dingle. And he arrived in Dingle just as the cholera epidemic of the 1830s struck. And if we think COVID is bad, I mean, in one day alone, apparently, in Dingle, 200 people died. And between the journals, his journals, and between the minute books of the local workhouse, which are also still extant, fortunately, you were managing, you managed to build a reconstruction of what life would have been like for the poorest in Kenmare, and it would have been utterly miserable. Oh, unbelievably so. I mean, to begin with, people lived on very little in those days in rural areas. I mean, potatoes and milk were were the main staple diet and you would have a little bit of fish. Vegetables were not greatly cultivated, oddly enough. I mean, we might think that things like parsnips and carrots and so on were, were plentiful, but they weren't grown in a lot of areas and people didn't even know how to grow them. And one of the features of the famine was they began to teach people how to do this. But I dedicate the book, for example, to Catherine Connell she was a little girl who was put out with her family, put out of the workhouse because it was hard even to get into the workhouse. There were all kinds of restrictions. And she was found as one man, the man who found her said, a little girl, as he thought, asleep on the road. But she and Dan and John and Michael, her brothers, were actually dead just above Kenmare Bay. Or there was Florence Sullivan who died within a week of being born. Her mother hadn't got enough nourishment to give her milk they were giving the babies coffee instead of milk in the workhouse, uh, despite the uh, best efforts of a wonderful medical officer called Dr Thomas Taylor, who himself was something of a, an extraordinary individual. And the stories of the, of the people stuffed into rooms, the panic among the children, it's just mind-boggling and people dropping dead in the street. But I didn't want to make this a completely negative, depressing story 
I set out to try to give a voice in a sense to these people who hadn't got a voice to find ways to tell their story. And one of the great things, as you've mentioned, are the workhouse minutes, which were rescued from an attic, I believe, somewhere. There's volume after volume of them in the Kerry County Archives. And I have to be to say I'm very grateful both to the archivist in Kerry County Library and to the diocesan library for managing to find COVID friendly ways of allowing me to have access to these records. And I could have written three books out mm. of them. They're so good. They're so full of stories. Now, I mean, we'll talk about O'Sullivan's contact book a little bit later because he had extraordinary contacts or met extraordinary people. But how did he initially respond to the crisis? In an entrepreneurial fashion, he, he didn't in the first instance seek charity. What He did what he had done when there was a, a period of need in Dingle too. He set out simply to find ways to get more food into the area so the price of food generally would be brought down. He seems in his own quiet way to have been quite a businessman. He managed to organise this and a number of the parish priests around Ireland were trying to do this in their own way to help their people. I mean, they were, after all, educated unlike a lot of their flock in those days. And it was an enterprising way just simply to try to do something practical because there were difficulties of getting food even distributed to these areas. So when the potato failed, it wasn't simply a question of people not being able to afford other forms of nutrition. They couldn't get their hands on it. So that was his initial way of responding. But that soon proved totally inadequate to what was happening. He, he took himself off to London. Why and what did he do when he got there? Yes, this was a time when it took 25 hours just to get to Dublin by coach and so on from Ken Mayer. So it was quite extraordinary that he did go to London. Uh, the first time he went, he went with the uh, Church of Ireland clergyman from Kilgarvan, uh, a reverend going. And he did have generally good relationships with the Church of Ireland clergyman, except with proselytizers. Uh, but he managed somehow or other to get himself not just introduced to Sir Charles Trevelyan, the famous Trevelyan of Trevelyan's corn in the song, uh, the most powerful civil servant in London when it came to Ireland and Irish famine relief. But he, he, he entered into a long correspondence with him and visited him a number of times when he went to London and ended up being invited even to stay in Trevelyan's house, which was quite extraordinary for a humble parish priest. But as well as that, he managed to get himself into the new British Association for Relief that had been set up by London bankers, many of them Jews, the Rothschilds and so on. And they had set up this charity and were working very hard to get relief to Ireland, but they weren't generally meeting people, letting them come to see them. O'Sullivan got in twice to them. And he worked with uh, a man called Solomons, for example, who became Lord Mayor of London. And he got relief. Uh, Rothschild put a a ship at the disposal of, of famine relief for Ken Mayer in particular. And if you visit the Holy Cross Church that he subsequently had built in Ken Mayer at no cost to the parishioners, it should be said, he managed to do it by getting donations, you'll find the Star of David as a common motif inside it. And local people believe that that is as a mark of gratitude to the Jewish people in London who helped Ken Mayer during the famine. The association with Trevelyan, as you say, is astonishing. But, I mean, presumably he didn't have that much influence on Trevelyan's thinking because, you know, I mean, Trevelyan is still excoriated in Ireland. He's not mentioned in quite the same breath as Oliver Cromwell, but not too far removed. I think Trevelyan gets something of a harsh press, to be honest. He was a civil servant trying to implement policy and policy at that time was very much in favour of an approach of letting things rip and not interfering 
dealing with the market. And I don't know if Trevelyan personally deserves the kind of excoriation that you mention. Of course, he had a limited influence and at times he was quite frustrated, but he found it very useful to him, the association, even when he got back home, because Trevelyan used to send him letters and he used to send him blue books of parliamentary proceedings. And the fact he was getting these even from Trevelyan meant that local officials and so on paid more attention to him. He also managed to get in to see Parliament. He appeared before a parliamentary committee and his evidence there is wonderful to read. Now, he wasn't the only priest who was doing these things. There were other men, too, who were trying to do the same thing, but he did have a disproportionate amount of contact and access and it had to have counted for something in my view and I do think it, it helped to get relief for Ken Mayer, which was very isolated. Tell me more about his relationship with members of the Protestant clergy because there's a suggestion that perhaps he was the person who coined the term super. Explain what the term super means, first of all, and then the ramifications of it, if you would. Well, there was a movement at that time uh, in the Church of Ireland, particularly to try and convert Catholics, proselytise, I suppose. And it was well intended in many cases. But of course, when Protestants came with relief in the form of free soup and free food and jobs and so on, uh, it appeared to very hard pressed Catholics, perhaps, that they were being bribed and a number of the uh, clergy set out very strongly to stop this happening and they targeted the proselytizers, that section of the Church of Ireland that was engaged in this and the people who were giving out this free soup became known as supers and uh, anybody who had anything to do with them, any Catholics who went over and converted would be isolated and even you know, condemned from the altar and excommunicated even in some cases and he is said to be in folk uh, memory in some parts of Kerry, the man who invented the actual term super. I don't know if that's true, but he certainly took very strong action against supers in Dingle. And then again, also in Kenmare, and the story I don't think has not been told about what happened in Kenmare with a local landlord of Tremor Castle, a man called Dennis Mahoney, and his second or third wife, who, who was a, a Dublin woman called Kate, who became known as Yellow Kate. And it became very bitter indeed and led to clashes and violence to such an extent that the landlord man himself got badly beaten one Sunday morning and uh, died, in fact, a few months later. And people came to think that uh, his debt could be attributed to, to this beating. And so O'Sullivan was known as, uh, you know, the, the priest who, who kills the parson in some quarters. And his, his actions were extreme and they worried even the authorities in the church and may have been one of the reasons why he never became Bishop of Kerry, even though the priests of Kerry voted for him to become Bishop. Yeah, he did not have a great relationship with authority figures in his own church. No, he didn't. And there were a couple of reasons for this. There were people like Cardinal Cullen and Archbishop McHale. There were the new hierarchy who were trying to make the Irish church more respectable, more bring it into line with the church across Europe, have less local um, festivities, patterns and so on, put an end to the stations where people used to have the sacraments brought out to them in local country farmhouses. And he belonged to a different generation who liked kind of that kind of church and were worried about the centralising formality of the new church. And when the Bishop of Kerry was too ill to go to the Synod of Thurlis, which was a major reforming synod, 
as it happens, O'Sullivan was sent in his place and he had an opportunity, much to his disadvantage in the end, to come into contact with Cullen and McHale and they didn't much care for him. Well, they, uh, didn't, they didn't much care for each other either. No, no, they certainly didn't. That's <laughs> evident from his journal, it has to be said. Um, and, uh, he, I mean, for example, he, he wasn't greatly enamoured of the Immaculate Conception. No, it's extraordinary. This again was part of a different Catholic church emerging during the 19th century with dogma and, you know, much more centralised authority. And he had great respect for the figure of the Virgin Mary, but he couldn't figure out, as he said, how he managed to go through Minute without ever having heard of this dogma or being forced to believe in the things that the church was now laying down for him to believe. And he didn't take very kindly to it, you know, to be honest. And I include reference to that in a chapter I have on women. Yeah, talk to us a little bit more about that chapter on women. Remarkable things to be learned about attitude towards women at the time in the workhouse records. Yes, in the workhouse records and elsewhere, particularly, for instance, in the workhouse records, the penitential section that was opened, for example, for unmarried mothers who came in or women who had become involved in what might be regarded nowadays as prostitution, I suppose, was probably regarded as that then, but they didn't quite put it that way. And so they created a penitential ward. Women were definitely second class citizens. I mean, even in the law on the relief of poverty, they were essentially the responsibility of their husbands. And if their husbands weren't looking after them, they were in deep trouble in terms of what kind of relief they could even claim. And throughout the history, Ken Mayor, right from the time that uh, Petty came and was granted the area, the great Cromwellian settler, and his wife was such a central part of the management of his estate, and on through the references that are sometimes passed over in relation to the role of women, right up to the role of the nuns in bringing education and helping to develop the lace-making industry, I was determined that there should be this story told because far too often women get left out of history. And in telling it, I was delighted to, uh, to be helped by discovering some sketches of women in Kenmare in a bookshop in Shrewsbury in England by a woman who was visiting in the 19th century. She was the a daughter of a member of the Queen's household. So I acquired these and I published a couple of them in the book, a couple of wonderful sketches of an old woman, for instance, looking over her shoulder as if she's looking back at the famine when she was probably in the, or could have been in the, in the, in the workhouse herself. And another picture of two young women on the road to Kenmare from Killarney, one of them with two little pigs on a leash, which was apparently a sign of being somewhat better off if you managed to own a pig. You were, it was a sign of wealth, you know. The last time you were on the programme, you spoke to us about your book on Arthur Griffith. And you, you, I mean, you're putting everybody to shame because you have three books out at the moment. The, the Griffith book, a short book called Midnight in London on the treaty, treaty negotiations, and the Ken Mayer book. But um, Griffith, one of the plenipotentiaries who negotiated the, the treaty, We've been talking about the famine years and he was a man driven by fear that Ireland was dying on its feet because of the decline in population, which obviously began during the famine period, but then continued for many, many decades afterwards. Absolutely stunning figures. I mean, I don't think we're really aware just how quickly and how much the population of Ireland continued to drop right up until 1961. It dropped of the area of the Republic to 2.1 million from something like 6.5 million between the famine and 1961. And even by 1900, the early 1900s, Griffith could see half of the population had left. They were just leaving in droves and the economy had been gravely damaged since the Act of Union. And this drove him. He was driven very much by economics. He grew up in the middle of great poverty in the centre of Dublin and his own family were badly affected. His father was very ill and died and he had to look after his his mother. So, I mean, you say I'm putting 
people to shame by three books. But these books are books that I see as related. That's a project I've been working on for quite a long time, the research on them, to tell stories about Ireland that I think are too easily forgotten about where we came from, about the real driving forces of people like Griffith, who had a fair grasp of economics, for which he has been sometimes not recognised, but occasionally has been by people like uh, Paddy Lyons, the great economist of the 20th century, who, who did see that this was a very key factor in his motivation. And sometimes I think when we talk about the treaty and so on, we talk too much about politics in Ireland and we forget the great tragedy of people's families being torn apart by the famine and the effects of the famine and its aftermath on the entire fabric of the country. Well, there's plenty of Colin Kenny reading to be done with those uh, three books published over the span of just a couple of years. And you're definitely putting other historians to shame. The the one that we've primarily been talking about is called Ken Mayer, History and Survival, Father John O'Sullivan and the Famine Poor. It's published by Eastwood Books. Colin, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Sheila Nivuil on sound and our researcher, Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.